we're in Matthew chapter 1 today, and we've been going through a series called A uh, Series of Unstoppable Events, which really is looking at the characters of Christmas and following on our last series of uh, the Identity Series and God speaking to us and learning more and more what it means to listen for His voice and to follow His lead I like this series because this Christmas series really acknowledges the sovereignty of God. It acknowledges that what an amazing thing as the New Testament era opens and after 400 years of silence, now God is speaking through prophets and angels and appearing to people in dreams. And uh, it really uh, gives hope and encouragement in today's day when we feel like maybe God is distant and, and we don't hear from Him that much. And a reminder today that we have His Word, which is His full counsel, and we can rejoice in that. And so we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph and the angel today, and it's found in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, this is what we read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Just uh, pause for a moment. I love that word birth in the original Greek is the word genesis. And so how cool that in Jesus we have a new beginning, a new genesis, a new creation. Scripture says that Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam fell to sin, and because of him we all were born with a sin nature. But the second Adam, Jesus, has provided salvation for us and new life and and a new beginning, a new way. And so that's really what we celebrate as well in the Christmas story. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to begin with some uh, background information, which is helpful just to understand the custom of marriage in ancient times and some other things before we dive into this text. But as you may recall from last week's sermon, Uh, We covered the part of the Christmas story last week where Gabriel, the angel, appeared to Mary and told her that she would conceive and give birth, and not just to any son, but to the Messiah, the the anointed one, the one that the Israelites had been expecting and longing for for so long. And she said, how can this be? For I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And Gabriel said, you know, basically with God, all things are possible. And he talked about how the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her, come upon her, and that the child born of her would be of the Holy Spirit. And so after that, subsequently, she had immediately gone off to the hill country of Judah, about 50, 70 miles from Nazareth, to see her cousin Elizabeth. 
and uh, her husband, Zacharias, they were the parents of John the Baptist, and Elizabeth had just uh, had an encounter with the angel Gabriel about um, six months prior, and uh, Gabriel had announced to her that they would uh, have a son, even in their old age, and this son, John the Baptist, would be the forerunner who would come to prepare the way, as we talk about preparation today, prepare the way for Jesus and his ministry. And so she went off there and spent about the last three months uh, with Elizabeth and her pregnancy, and we, we don't know when she actually became pregnant. Some scholars think from the time that Mary said, be it done unto me, as you have said, uh, whether that was the exact moment or somewhere in her travel uh, to the hill country of Judah, she becomes pregnant because immediately when she comes into the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, John leaps within Elizabeth's womb. And it's not because Mary's announcing that she's pregnant, but John senses the presence of Jesus. And then uh, Elizabeth praises Mary that, you know, how, how shall it be that the mother of my Lord would come to visit me? And we talked about, you know, what an amazing thing that yesterday she was just Mary, and now today she's the mother of my Lord. And how Elizabeth was quite a bit older uh, than, than Mary, obviously, but that humility and that respect that she's honoring her. But then the big thing is Mary goes home pregnant. Now we have to, like, Sometimes we just kind of sugarcoat things in Scripture and gloss over it and, and don't really feel the emotion. But if you're Joseph and you're engaged to Mary and she comes home pregnant, you're thinking, you know, did you meet some mountain man in Judah? I mean, what's this all about? You know, and, and it's hard to believe that, oh, it's of God. You know, sure, God hasn't done anything for 400 years. God hasn't spoken to the prophets God hasn't revealed himself in any miraculous ways. And then so we're supposed to, supposed to think that, oh, an angel appeared to you. And, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to swallow. And so Joseph is having a very hard time um, putting that all together. <clears throat> I want to uh, let you know about marriage and the custom because there's three aspects of uh, the Jewish marriage procedure that are helpful to know. The first step of marriage was called the engagement. And the engagement was often made by the bride and groom, uh, by their parents when they were only kids. And it was usually made through the parents or through a matchmaker. Uh, it was often made without the couple ever having seen each other. And it was seen as that marriage is far too serious of a relationship, a lifetime commitment to leave to just emotion or to the dictates of the heart. And so the parents were in charge of that, or a matchmaker. The second phase from engagement was betrothal. And the betrothal was essentially the ratification of the engagement that the couple had previously entered into. At this point in the engagement, um, it could be broken off if the girl decided that she didn't want to get married. But once, once the, the couple had committed and entered into this uh, betrothal period, it was absolutely binding. It lasted for one year, and during that year, the couple were known as husband and wife, although they didn't enjoy the privileges of husband and wife. Uh, their relationship was seen as absolutely binding, so much so that it could only be terminated by a certificate of divorce. They were legally seen as married at this point in husband and wife, and the only way to get out of it was a literal certificate of divorce. 
There's also passages in the Old Testament that talk about if the man or the woman died during this one-year period of betrothal, the other party was known as a widow or a widower. I mean, that's how intense and serious this was. So if Joseph wanted to end the betrothal, he could only do so by divorce in that initial year. And they were legally known as husband and wife. And then the final third stage was actual marriage, which took place at the end of the year. Now, during that time also, many times, <coughs> the, the groom would go back to his father's house and add on to it. And that's uh, why we have that, that beautiful picture in John chapter 14 when, when Jesus says, you know, uh, in my father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Uh, during that one-year period, the, the, the man would go and build a place for he and his wife, and then when he was done, he would come and receive his wife to come and live with him, and there'd be like the seven-long-day wedding and celebration. But this is helpful to know as we consider this. And when our text informs us in verse 19 that Joseph was a righteous man, it means that, you know, for him to follow through with this marriage um, with a woman that, from every perspective, seems to have been unfaithful to him, it would have brought dishonor to him, and the, the inference would have been to other people that he was the one that had violated her before the right time. And so there, there were a number of aspects to this. Deuteronomy chapter 22 actually stipulates that if a man were to violate a woman during her engagement to another man, that that man should be stoned, actually put to death. That's how serious it was. And the woman was to be stoned as well if there was no witness that she had protested, that she had cried out, you know, and, and, and resisted. And so, pretty serious. And so, when it says uh, that, he, in verse 19, that Joseph was planning to divorce her secretly, it means privately. Rather than take her to the city gates where the judges were, and in the presence of two or three witnesses, which, as you recall, everything was confirmed or ratified in the presence of witnesses, rather than do that publicly and to shame her and humiliate her, Joseph compassionately and mercifully wanted to do this privately. It wasn't so much that he just wanted to kind of you know, trash her and put her to the side and not have anybody know about it. This was actually a very honorable and loving thing to do, to kind of dismiss her privately. And it was only at this point, when he had determined to do this, that God intervened through a dream um, and through the angel. And Matthew records a number of dreams in, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's quite interesting. The first we see here in verse 20, when the angel appears to Joseph, the next time we see God speaking through a dream is in chapter 2, verse 13, when Joseph is warned, warned in a dream that Herod's going to kill all the, the babies, and so they flee to Egypt. He's to take Mary and, and uh, Jesus and flee to Egypt. And then in verse 19 of chapter 2, an angel appears to Joseph again and tells him that Herod has died and they can return back to Israel at this point. Um, in chapter 2, verse 22... Uh, Joseph is instructed by the angel to um, actually go to the region of Galilee, which Nazareth, that's where they came from. That's where Mary first heard the angel speak to her because Archelaus, who was Herod's son, was in power at this time. And Joseph feared that and knew that, well, 
if, if uh, Archelaus's dad, Herod, was a madman and was killing, he's probably going to perpetuate this. And so they went uh, south of, of uh, Jerusalem to the region of Galilee. And then finally, the last time we see uh, God speaking through a dream is actually in chapter 27 of Matthew in verse 19. As you may recall, um, during Jesus' um, hearing or his, his, uh, his trial, Pilate's wife comes to Pilate and says, don't mess with this guy. I had a nightmare last night. And in that dream, um, God instructed me, you know, he is a righteous man. And so don't wrong him, which Pilate obviously ignores uh, the wisdom and the counsel of his wife. But all of that to say that, you know, this is huge. After 400 years of silence, that God is speaking to his people, speaking to all people and revealing himself. Well, there's three challenges in the text that um, I was looking at this week that I believe are, are really relevant and applicable to us today. And the first challenge that I see in our text is, is really a question. And the question is, do we listen to truth? Do we listen to truth? Now, we might respond to that and say, well, if an angel appeared to me, yeah, I would listen. Or, yeah, if I had a dream and God spoke to me in a dream, I, I would certainly listen. And the question is, really, really would we? You know, would, would we listen without seeking uh, the counsel of wise advisors? Would we listen without uh, asking for further signs or clarification? Um, it's a good question. You know, today we have the full counsel of God's Word, complete. You know, we often complain, I wish God spoke to me the way He did to people back then. <clears throat> God has done better than that. God has given us His Word you know, which the average person of the day didn't have access to. They had to go to the temple and have it read to them by the, the teachers out of the scrolls. And today we have the complete uh, Word of God, Old and New Testament, in so many translations that, you know, we, we could certainly understand it with study guides and notes. And, and, and yet, do we treat it like God's Word? Do we listen to God's Word? Or often do we find excuses for, for not listening, not obeying? Jesus is the Greek for the Hebrew Joshua. And Joshua literally means the Lord is salvation. And to draw out this meaning in our passage, uh, the angel quotes Psalm 130, verse 8. Psalm 130, verse 8 says this, He, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. But notice in our passage in verse 21 that instead of referencing Israel, Matthew places his people instead. Instead of Israel, it's his people because Jesus will turn out, uh, actually, Jesus' people will turn out to be the church, which is us, which is all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles, all ethnicities coming together in the church uh, not just Israel, and we are the ones that this is actually referencing. And in verse 23, Matthew replaces Israel's, or I'm sorry, Isaiah's quote, and she will call his name Emmanuel, referring to Mary, with, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Again, meaning the church, the people of God, 
Not just Mary when she names him, but the church, the people of God, will acknowledge, yes, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Powerful point there. Especially as we consider that the ultimate mark of a disciple, of a Christian, is not just our profession. It's not just what we say with our lips, but it's what we do with our actions. It's so easy to come together as a body of believers in church and sing songs that acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is and profess with our lips the truths that we believe and yet leave here and live a very separate, different life. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The, the key mark, the ultimate mark of a disciple is not just someone who professes verbally the right things, but someone who backs it up with action, with obedience. Believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life means believing his message, believing his word. Do we listen to truth? Do we respond to truth? When we went through the book of James, we, we studied chapter one, you know, the, the hearer of the word rather than the doer of the word, you know, and James said, don't merely be like a hearer of the word who listens, but then goes and, and doesn't do anything. It's like a guy that looks in the mirror, a person that looks in the mirror and sees their appearance and then leaves and does nothing about it. And James says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And so believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life means believing his message, his word. It's acknowledging that he is God, God with us, guiding us in all truth, and showing us, instructing us how we are to live. That's the first thing I see in our passage. Do we listen to truth? Joseph did a great job at listening. Point number two, the second thing I see here, the second challenge really question, is are we willing to make course corrections? Are we willing to make course corrections? Are we willing to admit when we're wrong? Uh, that we didn't have all the facts, that we didn't have all the information, that we didn't see things from every perspective? And are we able and willing to change when we receive new information? That's a huge sign of Christian maturity, huge sign of Christian maturity. Uh, or, or do we rigidly stick to our guns? Do we dig our heels in and just maintain our position no matter what anybody else says? A huge sign of Christian maturity is the ability and the willingness to make course corrections. When confronted with new information, with new facts, that we're willing to say, you know what, I was wrong. I didn't have the full picture. I, I, was, I was misguided and to be able to change. And part of this for Joseph means the ability and the willingness to depart from tradition, from societal expectations, in order to follow the Lord's voice and the Lord's command. I didn't fully appreciate, or I had never fully appreciated in this passage, that from the time Joseph awoke from the dream, he took Mary as his wife. And I always read that, but I had not really thought. He had Mary move in with him. They, because of her condition, from that point, he followed the Lord, and, and, and he, they didn't wait a year like they were supposed to, but he had her move in. And not only that, but he kept her pure. He didn't touch her or violate her until she had had Jesus, 
which is a miracle in itself. I mean, that's, that's some honorable guy that brings her in and treats her as his wife, no, no matter what the people would say, the ridicule, the scorn. He's following the Lord, and he's acting upon the message this angel brought. I was thinking this week, you know, what's a good example in Scripture of a course correction? And God led me to that passage in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is informed that he had been operating wrong, and that uh, he had had some wrong um, perspectives and thoughts. In Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, listen to this story. It's worth mentioning. Uh, Acts 10 verse 9 says, speaking to Peter, on the next day, as they were on their way, the disciples approaching the city, Peter went up to a housetop in about the sixth hour to pray. It's Acts 10 verse 9. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again, the voice came to him a second time and said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Skipping ahead to verse 19, three verses later. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Verse 20. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for, for the reason for which you have come. Or what is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come, uh, to come to his house and hear a message from you. So we invited them and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had come called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am just a man. And he talked with him and entered and found many people assembled. And he said to, him, to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without any uh, objections when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you, for he is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter says a lot of stuff, but this is the main point of it. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. 
For in every nation, the man or woman who fears him and does what is right is welcomed by him. And he goes on. But Peter has this amazing course correction, not just about the food that he eats and what he considered previously to be unclean and what is now clean because whatever God has made clean is certainly clean, but also about the people that he associates with, that he doesn't have to be this proper, holy, devout Jew who only associates with other Jews. But this really opened the door for the gospel and to the message of the Gentiles that God does not show partiality. Anyone who genuinely seeks his face and honors him is welcomed by him. I love that story. So again, I ask the question, are you and I willing to make course corrections? Or often do we, do we just dig in our heels because that's, that's just our routine in life? Or we've been doing something for so long we can't imagine doing it another way. Oftentimes, the things that we do are even destructive, sinful patterns, but we've been doing them for so long, we just accept it. And I think the message of this story is when we are confronted with God's truth, do we change? Do we change? Or do, do, we, do we just admire truth? And Oh, that's, that's wonderful truth for someone else. You know, like the people that leave church and go, I heard the best sermon for you. You know, and they... <laughs> They want to apply the, the convicting message for someone else. It never applies to them. Well, the third and last point is how is our obedience response time? How is our obedience response time? I become convinced the older that I get that the difference between a, an immature Christian and a mature Christian is how fast they obey. How fast they obey. When confronted with truth, how fast do we make a course correction and how fast do we obey and do what God says? Joseph's obedience is immediate. It's immediate. Because of this, he becomes a model for us to emulate. How quickly do we listen and respond? Or again, do we have to process stuff with our close friends and people that we believe are wise? Do we ask for additional signs and confirmations? As soon as Joseph is awakened from this dream, he obeyed, violated all custom, all tradition, took Mary as his wife to his home, um, and from that time on, just was an obedient man. Joseph, his righteousness, his righteous obedience, makes him really a prototype, a model of, of not only Jesus and Jesus' ministry, but for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Matthew is highlighting this throughout his gospel. Um, in the same way, Joseph not wanting to disgrace Mary, his, his mercy, his compassion, is another characteristic or sign that points to Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that we're marked by this, that we're, we're seen and known in this way. Well, I want to draw some application. <clears throat> it, it's it's mind-boggling mind -boggling to me that after all the good that Jesus did, all the miracles, all the people that he healed, and all this, that the religious elite never got past the perception that he was illegitimate. And you, you miss that. You forget about that in Scripture. Um, John chapter 8 is a good example of this. 
uh, Jesus is talking to the religious teachers, and they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And here's their response. You are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They're still at this point in Jesus' public ministry thinking he's an illegitimate child, that he's a, a child out of wedlock. That, that scandal never really left Jesus. And it, it reminds me of what someone once wisely said. People are either scandalized by Jesus or they're saved by Jesus. The question is, which are we today? Is Jesus a scandal to us? Is he offensive? Does he make us uncomfortable? Or are we willing to accept the message of who he is? In verse 21 of our passage, when Matthew quotes the psalmist, the psalmist said this back in Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. He wrote, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. In Psalms, it's the Lord. It's the Lord that will redeem his people from their sins. So here in Matthew, as Matthew applies this to Jesus, he's lifting up the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that's going to redeem and perform what they knew only God could do. He is Emmanuel, God with us, saving his people from their sins. As we know very well, the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come and would redeem Israel from the Roman tyranny and purify his people, but no one expected, no one expected that the Messiah would lay down his life and give it as a ransom for salvation. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's where I want to leave us today as we continue on in this story. You know, a lot to take in for Joseph and Mary, a lot of course corrections, a lot of new knowledge once the angel and appeared to them in the dream and in person. And I guess the question for us today is, as we're confronted with God's truth, are we willing to recognize it as truth? Are we willing to make course corrections? And how quick are we to act upon what we hear and what we see? Let's pray.